Hello and welcome to the Catholic Link Podcast, the podcast for busy Catholics. This is Father Rob Adams, and today I am happy to be joined once again by Father Joe Rampino, and we are here to continue our discussion on the history of priesthood. How are you, Father Rampino? Doing great. How you been? I am still alive, and that is an accomplishment. It is better than the alternative, I suppose. Uh, I yeah, think. well, I guess we're supposed Unless you go to, to say that. Right. I mean, one is supposed to say, but if you desire heaven enough, I suppose you could say, yeah, but I'm glad you're alive, Father Rob. We'll say oh, that. That's awesome. Well, I wanted to continue our last discussion on the history of the priesthood. And last time we got up to the patristic age and kind of the idea of the priest as the presbyter, right? We don't even have the right. word priest. So right. where do we go from here? Well, so we've got this little portrait that we had uh, put together last time of the earliest uh, clerical hierarchies where we've got the bishop as the primary celebrant of the sacraments. The bishop is the primary Eucharistic celebrant. Of course, we know that people believed presbyters could celebrate sacraments uh, as we do have. Uh, we talked about uh, the old practice of sending some of the bishop's Eucharist, for example, to a Eucharist celebrated by a presbyter just to make sure that it was on the up and up. But in fact, we do know that there were celebrants who were away from the bishop sometimes. Uh, and we had a sense uh, a little bit in that portrait of how priests were often living together. Presbyters were living with their bishop and the other clerics. Uh, so I think the next thing we want to talk about a little bit is maybe where are these vocations coming from? How did people talk about a priestly vocation? Um, and then how did we go about forming uh, forming clerics, forming uh, presbyters, uh, priests, bishops, all of the, the hierarchy there? Because uh, that is a fascinating thing. Now, you and I obviously both went through seminary. And of course, uh, vocations literature uh, talks in a certain way. And uh, it did uh, in the early and mid 2000s when you and I were discerning, <laughs> right? It's kind of like there are three equal vocations, you know, pray and talk to people and talk to vocation directors and just meditate and see what the Lord's drawing you to in your heart and then present yourself for one of them. Go talk to a religious order, go talk to the vocation director you know, go out on a date, right? Ask somebody out, see what happens, but present yourself for, uh, you know, the beginning of that process. Uh, I don't know what it was like uh, in Kentucky where you were, but we got a lot of that same kind of, um, is that same kind of instruction to discern in the quiet of our hearts and then present ourselves. Does that sound about accurate for you? Yeah, it was, I mean, and, and kind of the common theme that from everything you just said was, you know, it, it was a lot on us, as long right. as to 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 do the soul searching, to do the 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 interviews, to to do the thinking, right, and right. That I kind of have a suspicion that's a pretty modern concept, and I'm yeah. I'm <laughs> willing to bet that whatever you're about to tell me is not that. Yeah, absolutely not that. It is a modern thing. Ours is is super private, right? Ours is super privatized. This is something I do in. Uh, the privacy of my own conscience, for the most part, or at least we sometimes think it's that way. And then once I presented myself, then the church or the order or the other person has their say and does this work. But it's a lot of self-knowledge and self-reflection than presentation. In the early church, this is simply not the case. <laughs> oh boy. One of the most hilarious things is, uh, to me anyways, is to read the vocation stories of some of our favorite church fathers. So people like St. John Chrysostom, people like St. Augustine, people like St. Ambrose or Martin of Tours or Gregory the Great. And a common theme, and I'm not sure if this is just, it has to be there 
because the hagiographers are trying to prove a point about the holiness of the person, uh, or if it reflects something uh, really common, but it does at least tell you the mindset of the time, is that in all of those stories, we see these great heroes of the church, these great priests and eventually bishops um, did not present themselves for priestly life, uh, but found themselves presented. The community decided for them. In some cases, this involves actually like kidnapping. Oh boy. Right. <laughs> it's really something. If you read Augustine uh, in a couple of homilies, he talks about his priest community, uh, the community that surrounds him in the diocese of Hippo. Uh, and he talks about his own vocation. And essentially the story is, you know, he's from a town called Tagast and he's trying to visit a town called Hippo uh, where he has a friend. He's trying to visit this friend. He knows the community want him to be a priest uh, he does not want to be a priest because he is convinced that this is too much for anyone to bear. Uh, and so he tries to time his trip so that he'll miss the local bishop. He gets his timing wrong, goes to mass anyways on Sunday. The bishop points him out to the people and from the pulpit says, capture him. And they capture him and drag him forward for ordination. And Augustine says, uh, I, I relent. I'll be ordained so long as you build for me a little house next to yours where I can live like a monk anyways. Uh, and the bishop says, fine, great, has him ordained and then dies and leaves the diocese to Augustine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's Augustine's vocation story, right? Not a whole lot of discernment, not a whole lot of self-reflection. It's just the community says, you are good. You will be our priest. And then they capture him. Wow. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of, I don't want to say it sounds Protestant, but there is <laughs> almost the the kind of Protestant vibe of like, we pick our, our preacher, but Sure, but you know this is obviously with apostolic succession. This is like a right. real priest, and and right. uh, you know obviously I'm sure this went wrong sometimes where they picked someone who was crazy because the people were right. crazy, right? Certainly, and we can get into that in a second. But I think it's important to say that it's um, in the modern age when we would say we choose our own people. That's more uh, you know us getting behind the banner of a a, a more. Uh, democratic church, a church in a, a democratic style. That's not what's going on in the ancient world. The idea is that uh, no one presents himself for a holy task, right? Mm. The very scriptural idea of no one presents himself for the high priesthood. No one takes the priesthood on himself. He has to be called. He has to be selected. Uh, and the people would present or the bishop would choose. And I know of some places among the cops, in, um, I know and who had been a doctor his whole life, and the bishop told him, hey, you are now going to be a priest, and that was that. He ended his entire doctor, uh, his entire medical practice, and became a priest because and um, that was the old model. Uh, the other thing that begins to, to happen at that time, kind of as the classical period ends and the medieval period begins, sort of between the 500s and the 800s, you have the rise of um, the donation of vocations. So families at this time would begin to send their children away to be raised, right? So if your child was going to be raised in a secular style, you would send him away to the local Lord who would train him in military pursuits, would train him in court etiquette in hunting and horseback riding and all these sorts of things that a nobleman would be expected to do. And if the child was destined for the church, you would send him to the Bishop or to the monastery and he would be raised there from the age of three or four, um, learn to read in the context of the bishop's house or the monastery. We have councils from Toledo in the 500s 
showing that in Visigothic Spain, the, the expectation was that your vocation as a churchman began from the first years of infancy. That's the actual text from like wow. uh, from the Second Council of Toledo that says you were to be in the bishop's house under his supervision from the first years of infancy for the rest of your life. Um, so on the one hand, you have people who are being claimed by the community. On the other, you have people who are being donated by their parents, either to the secular world or to the sacred world. And you would often, at least for diocesan priests, if not for the monks, you would often have a choice when you reach the age of majority, whether you wanted to stay there or leave. But for the most part, that was your life. It was set for you. It wasn't a matter of personal discernment. Uh, but you have this very, very different uh, idea of what a vocation is, is really coming from God and not coming from you. Uh, and then formation taking place in the house of the bishop in the context of all of the other clerics with whom you live. So it sounds to me almost like the the bishop's house is not really the place where you learn how to be a priest. The bishop's house is where you learn how to be a Christian. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. So the bishop's house was the place where you grew up. I mean, in many of these cases, um, you know, when this practice began to decline in the 12th century uh, under um, kind of the suggestions of Orion reformers, uh, one of the things that uh, these clerics who had been who had been clerics since the age of three or four, they would defend their way of life by saying, "We have been comrades from our infancy. We've grown up together. We've grown up as brothers. We've grown up uh, doing good and avoiding evil. We we've grown up without knowledge of sin. Um, how can this be uh, something that the church no longer wants? Uh, because that was the sense we were growing up together." as a uh, Christian. And part of, I think this is a key, is that the priestly vocation was a call within a call. It wasn't so much I'm discerning, do I become a priest? Because the parish priest as such still doesn't exist, mm. right? That's in, in strange ways. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the parish priest as such still doesn't exist. Not really as we, as we know them today. Uh, priesthood would be a call within the call of being a cleric. Right, you would be brought into the cleric life to serve Lord in his sanctuary, and that included all of the different grades. You know, from your cantors to your acolytes to your lectors, up to deacons and priests and bishops. And let's not all forget the, the porter at the door. Let's not forget the porter or the exorcists or the subdeacons. <laughs> uh, and that's a whole that's a whole other history. The evolution of what's considered an order or not. My goodness, the books written on that are voluminous. Um, if you want to get into the weeds, we can do that another time. But uh, all of these grades of clerics would be living together with their primary task being to pray, to celebrate the liturgy of the hours, to celebrate the mass, but to celebrate the whole cycle of the liturgy as one community for the sake of the people there. Uh, Leo the Great even tells us why. He even says if the priests and the clerics don't live together in charity, then how can the people do so? Uh, so his, his thought was if you don't have priests living a common life together, then the people don't really have much of a chance at living a common life in charity either, uh, which is an interesting concept, one that you don't hear too often now. Right. Well, we've only got just a second left, but before we end today and we put off this to a part three and four, and you know, this can go on a little bit. <laughs> All um, right. I talked way too long. No, no. One of the things I think that's really interesting though, what you just said about living together it seems to point to the together. Like if all the priests are together, that kind of means that 
really, at the end of the day, there's one church in the diocese and there's really one liturgy that all these guys are serving. I mean, so I'm a liturgist. And one of the things you find if you ever, God help you if you do this, but if you open up these old, old sacramentaries, if you can read Latin, if you can, and it's awesome. I'm all about it. One of the things you'll find when you do that is you'll find all of these random people who are supposed to be doing different tasks. And right. most of the time, this would not have been possible in a small, what we call parish, right? Oh. You might've had a priest and a server, but if you have all these priests living together, we have one church, one liturgy, and that That's sounds correct. like it's where the bishop is. That's correct. So the liturgy is the church, on, uh, particularly the Sunday liturgy, but also you look at like Lenten stational liturgies, all this kind of thing. But the liturgy as the church understood it uh, was really not practicable for what we would consider a parish now, where you've got one priest and some altar servers or maybe two priests and a deacon. There's just no way you could do it. You could not put on the liturgies that the church required in her books um, anywhere other than the cathedral. Or sometimes if a diocese was particularly big, you would have collegiate churches that acted as kind of satellite, uh, as your satellite churches. But uh, really those two would have communities of 10 maybe 15 clerics at them uh, instead of kind of parishes now and the the parish which we'll talk about we do this um, really does point to the fact that there's a tension between what the church intended and planned and then what the church found on the other hand and regulated um but that's that's a longer topic well, maybe for next. That's a great that's a great segue into our our next one. Father Rampino, thanks for being on today. I always love talking about this stuff. Uh, yeah, it's it's, it's cool to hear you get excited about it too. <laughs> thanks for putting up with me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, once again, this has been the Catholic Link podcast. You can head on over to www.catholiclink.org and you can find all of our stuff over there on the website. Please be sure to go over there to subscribe and to give us your feedback because that really matters to us. Anyway, this has been our podcast, the Catholic Link podcast. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time.